Hi, welcome back. It's Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, and with us today is Ezra Cohen. He's the former acting undersecretary of defense for intelligence and security, and joining him is also uh, <laughs> Mark Zaid, uh, the attorney bon vivant, uh, who is uh, takes care of every FOIA problem in the world and is, uh, is Ezra's uh, attorney. So stick around. We're going to talk about security clearances and the problems at the DOD regarding that. We'll be right back right after this. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, Just Ask the Questions newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth. With Brian's in-depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not released anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash J-A-T-Q podcast. Hi, we're back. It's Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam. Once again, joining us is Ezra Cohen, and he has uh, served as Acting Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence and Security beginning in November 10th of 2020 during the uh, Trump administration and left at the end of the Trump administration. But the reason why he's with us talking today is that uh, he took an action while he was at the DOD that is supposed to be implemented by September 30th regarding security clearances, which may or may not happen. And before we get to that, I think, Mark, you're going to chime in and tell us, give us a little primer on the problems of security clearances and how it all started. Would you like to give us that? Yeah, Brian. So look, I've been handling security clearance cases for over two decades, going on 25 plus years. I teach lawyers and uh, facility security officers within the government as well, security officers and contractors, about how security clearances work. Now, it's important as we kind of discuss this unbelievable reform effort that Ezra created in the last days of the Trump administration, which the Biden administration is about to scuttle, understand how we got here. So we have nowadays over 4 million people who have security clearances. So this impacts tens and tens of thousands of people who face adverse actions. Now this started back in the late 50s with the Eisenhower administration where individuals were starting to go under and get security clearances and deal with due process issues. And there was a Supreme Court case called Green versus McLevoy that uh, was actually here in the DC area dealing with WJFK 106.7 that people might remember, which was alleged to be a communist front back in the day. And this Navy employee was said to be a communist, right? Bad thing to be in the 1950s. And he lost his clearance in a 
in a uh, a secret proceeding. He no was due process. No due process. No due process. Anonymous uh, allegations against him, and they just stripped him of his clearance, and he sued. And he got up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court ordered the administration to provide him substantive due process. Now, before that that happened, the Eisenhower administration, rather than have Congress step in and create the process, the Eisenhower administration issued an executive order that created basically what still exists today for contractors to have substantive due process. The problem is, 60 years later, civilian employees and military personnel have less substantive due process rights than private contractors who work for the U.S. government. And Ezra, that's what you were trying to change, correct? That's exactly right, Brian. First of all, thanks for having me. Um, yes, thanks for being you know, here. You know, and, and one we, thing I do want to clear up before, this is not a political thing. This isn't Trump versus Biden. This is a DOD. This this is an act. That's, this is a problem that's been around for 60 years. You took it upon yourself to try and reform it, correct? Is that fair to say? Absolutely, Brian. And you know, I always kind of live by this. It's, it's never the wrong time to do the right thing. And, you know, coming out of, uh, you know, being a civil servant and a career employee of the um, intelligence community, and then getting to the point where I had the ability as Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence and Security to change a problem that I had observed happening around me uh, for over a decade, um, you know, it, it just was the right thing to do. And frankly, in the intelligence community and in the Department of Defense were many, many military members and civilians who aren't part of the IC but work within DOD, have security clearances that they rely on for their jobs. Uh, these clearances are their livelihoods. If you take away their clearances, um, you deprive them of the ability in many cases to have a job that puts food on the table for their family. So this was just the right thing to do. It, it just seemed to me that it was incredibly un-American uh, to deprive uh, military members and civilians who are serving their country of, of just basic due process rights. So you, you decided that, look, uh, if you're a civilian employee, if you're a member of the military and they're going to yank your security clearance, you have to have a due process in place to do it. And so you issued uh, the, the order. And no one's, no one's saying that you didn't have the authority to do that, correct? Uh, absolutely not. I mean, this this order went through. Uh, you know, actually, it was collaboratively written with the uh, with the general counsel. Um, and as the senior security official within the Department of Defense, and also dual hat as the deputy director for national intelligence, um, this was well within the authority of the position. Um, and it is a good common sense reform. Uh, the, the idea that we had two standards within the department um, was just not reasonable. In fact, uh, it also created a fragmented adjudication process, um, one which Secretary Gates, uh, who was at the time Defense Secretary in 2011, identified as, as something that needed to be fixed in his track for efficiency initiatives. And so not only did it extend the uh, the, the, the protections that uh, President Eisenhower uh, laid out in 1960 to civilian and military members of the Department of Defense, but it also implemented something from 2011 
uh, from Sec uh, President Obama, Secretary of Defense at the time. So let me add, Mark, going back to you, you said that how many seriously, how many people does this affect uh, overall in the DOD? Well, in just August, it was determined that for, about 4.1 million people have security clearances in the U.S. government, in and around contractors or uh, federal employees. Of the 4.1, 3.8 million are Department of Defense clearances. So the bulk of them. Now, obviously, the vast majority of people, the last number that I saw, like 97% of people get their security clearances without a great deal of problem. But 3% right. of 3.8 million people, right? Let's do the math. 3.3, I'm doing it, is is something like 15 to 20,000 people. And, and I remember the last time I saw the number it was upwards of 30,000 people. So for those who are in the DC area who are Nats, Nationals fans, basically fill National Stadium. That's how many people. There's, there's that many Nats that fans that. left? <laughs> well, that's, if you were in the seats, if you were in the seats. <laughs> I'm sorry, I couldn't resist. But so uh, there are as many as 30,000 people that could be affected directly by this of the 3.8 or 4.1 million that have. Yeah, 37% are active duty military, 17% they all are be, uh, I'm sorry, maybe I'm misunderstanding, but if this if this uh, lack of due process is for military and civilian, isn't that uh, the bulk of, you just said is the bulk of the people, yes? Uh, it is about 57, 74%, if I'm doing my math correct, uh, versus 26% of contractors. So again, it's not that they don't have due process. It's that the contractors, the non-government workers have better due process than do civilian and military personnel of our government, which makes absolutely no sense. This is dealing with the Defense Office of Hearings and Appeals, and an office we call DOHA that very few people know about, that is basically having a little mini trial, an administrative hearing, where you can bring witnesses for the contractors and for some of the civilian military, but Doha doesn't get to enter or render the final decision in the non-contract cases, the government cases. They refer it back to a component called a PSAB, a Personnel Security Appeals Board, at each of the different components. All the DOD components have a different process. And I will just tell you, because I deal with all of them, some of them are good, many of them are not. And, and Doha is sort of the golden standard of how clearance cases are handled. People have the best chances of being able to persuade an administrative judge that it is in the national security interest, not in the person's interest. It is always a decision in the national security interest yes. of the United States that that person should have a clearance. And so, Ezra, you basically eliminated or, or changed this and, and decided that th we had to increase the due process for the military and for civilian employees. And it was supposed to take place, uh, I, I gather, by the end of this month. So what happened? Well, you know, the department has had approximately a year and a half to put in place uh, the necessary resources to handle what will be an increased 
number of uh, administrative trials before a final revocation is made of a person's clearance. And this means they need more administrative law judges. So we gave them, I intentionally gave them this buffer of time to effectively increase the resourcing. Now, you know, and I, and I, as Mark and I both know, uh, this is not an issue of resources. Um, Doha has the ability, and certainly within that period of time, had the ability to scale up as they would need to handle more cases. Um, what this really comes down to is unfortunately uh, some entrenched bureaucratic interests that do not want to uh, give up their almost godlike authority to strip people of their livelihoods without a hearing uh, first. And um, I mean, Mark, I, I, do you want to do you want to kind of delve into that a little bit more? Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the problem is, and Ezra mentioned it. This is this reform is not new this process. And as you said, Brian, and it's important to emphasize, it has nothing to do with politics. It has everything to do with bureaucratic entrenchment of nameless, faceless people that at least Ezra and I know who they are, but to the general public, you know, no one will ever recognize these people's names who believe they have a ton of power and wish to continue to flex it as to what they think is best. Uh, with very little experience in actually handling any of these types of cases. Uh, and Secretary of Defense Gates, as Ezra mentioned, ordered this to be done 12, 11 years ago, and it was ignored because he left his position. The Government Accounting Office, the GAO, which is the, the wing, investigative wing of Congress, uh, or actually did a study on this in 2014 and also recommended what Ezra has finally tried to implement. And DOD just sat back and did nothing. In fact, in 2015, the DOD and Office of General Counsel issued a memo stating there's no legal obstacle to do what everyone wants. And they just keep keep working group this to death. And that's Why what- why yeah, do you we're, think that is? I mean, that my question to Ezra and you both, like, why, Ezra, do you think that there is such an uh, obstinance to th this progressive change? So, so I think there's a few things, and, I, and I'll give you a little story. When, when we were um, drafting this memorandum, um, I had a very senior uh, counterintelligence official within the Department of Defense come to my office and say, sir, if you sign this, you're going to be giving away your authority to take away people's clearances. Now, you know, I, I it, it, you have to laugh at it, but it's very sad, right? Um, essentially, this person uh -oh. is, is, is saying that I shouldn't sign this because I won't be able to then just arbitrarily strip people of their livelihood. And, you know, of course, that's not something that that, that that's not American. So uh, I think that there's, again, there's this idea that it somehow relinquishes power. Now, first of all, I was very careful in the memo. To, to very specifically note that if there is an exigent circumstance, for instance, if, if any of the leads of the defense intelligence uh, agencies um, that reported to me, if they had an exigent circumstance, for instance, uh, an employee running out of the door with, with classified documents, or if they actually caught somebody you know, spying for a foreign uh, power, they could act to suspend access to classified information or special access programs 
for the specific purpose of safeguarding national security. So this doesn't make the system any less safe. You still have that ability in exigent circumstances. So really, you have to ask yourself, and Brian, back to your question, I mean, it is mind-boggling, right? Because the answer for why people don't want this to happen is really quite disturbing. And it is? It is that, again, what Mark said and what I just laid out, people do not want to give up their ability to arbitrarily ruin other people's lives. Yeah, I know you said it, and and, and I caught it. I just felt like that needed to be emphasized, because here you are, you're... You're trying to give due process and you're being told from in the government that you, you'll be giving up your godlike stature and relegating yourself to that to the role of, I don't know, justice. So transparency isn't exactly high on the priority list of these people who want to keep this as it is, I suppose. No. And in fact, the entities that would no longer play a significant overt role in the process do not publish their security clearance decisions in current form, meaning today. Doha does. You can go online and you can read the security clearance decisions going back almost, I think, 30 years to the mid-90s of Doha. It strips it of all personal information, so you, you can't tell who it's about, but it is complete transparency. But the other agencies like DIA, NSA, uh, the, the military branches, they don't do anything in the open with respect to how clearance process works. You have all sorts of problems about gaining access to the information that is sometimes relied upon, especially if it's classified. I'm one of the few lawyers who handle these cases who has a security clearance, and even I have issues or problems in the sense of gaining access because it's all controlled by the agencies. And the key thing to go back to what what Ezra was just saying and that you picked up on as well is that when we're talking about that this memo would move authority from one place to the other, it's in the Defense Department, right? It's yeah. nothing is going outside the government. This is completely governmental control by the experts who have years and years of experience in adjudicating and operating and handling due process for security clearances. Now, I want to say just one quick thing. I think I said GAO wrong. It's the Government Accountability Office that's late as we're doing this podcast. <laughs> well, Ezra, let me ask you this. I mentioned at the beginning that this is not about politics. However, being DC, I'm sure that you've run into those who would like to make it about politics. You know, actually... Obviously, that happens a lot in Washington, D.C. as a as a uh, D.C. Uh, native. But, um, you know, I'd be you'd be surprised on this. There really hasn't been that much of it. And I think it's because so many people inside the Beltway know and really outside the Beltway. Remember, we have a lot of military. I mean, the bulk of the U.S. military and those that have clearances do not live inside Washington, D.C. Thank God. Um, and and, and it, yeah, and it, it is well understood that the security clearance process is, is opaque. Uh, it's not transparent. And there are bad decisions that are made. Um, you know, there are a good number of people. And I mean, I'm sure Mark would know the numbers more, although we don't know exactly from the agencies because they don't publish all the data. But there are a large number of people who have their clearance revoked for uh, basically the wrong reasons, and it's reinstated. And what happens is, because they don't have the ability to confront the allegations first in a hearing, 
um, people are basically put on leave without pay. And so you, in a way you actually create, and, and this is one thing, Brian, that, that the memo doesn't address entirely. Although had I, you know, had there been more time, I, we would have tackled this. And this is certainly something I hope the current USDI addresses. But when you put somebody on leave without pay because their clearance is revoked, you're actually creating more of a counterintelligence risk because you're depriving them of income. So you kind of get yourself into this, you know, catch 22 situation. Uh, it's extremely harmful. You know, the last thing I'll just, and I, one other thing I'd and, add. But, well, I want to, I want to, I want to drill down on that a little bit. Sure. It, it, when you're talking about um, depriving people of income who are, so, and you're saying that creates a more dangerous situation. You're saying the temptation is then there to do things that are maybe unsavory that, that they could do because they've had access, or do you think that they would sell secrets that they've, they've had, or what exactly do you mean by making it well, more unsafe? Well, Brian, you know, one of the, um, you know, things that the security clearance process looks at is financial vulnerabilities and whether or not people have excessive debt or, or, uh, you know, are they living outside of their means? Well, if you so that's obviously something that's been identified right. rightfully and if you, so. And if you cut off their their salary, then they really do have financial right. difficulties. That's, yeah. Exactly. So 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 you know that that really doesn't make sense, and 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 that is not that's another thing. Uh, just you know that is not uh, a, a, you know um, an epiphany, epiphany. You know people understand that that's a problem in the current system. But, you know, giving people a hearing up front and, and, and having the ability to confront the allegations against them uh, will, in some sense, lessen that because, you know, people are going to be able to address things that could be false uh, before their clearance is revoked uh, if the memo go is implemented. You know, one other thing, and I, I'll just add this, you know, putting myself into the shoes of the DIA director or the NSA director, the NRO director or the NGA director, all, all of who... Uh, worked for me, you know, I would want this process to be off my plate out of my agency. And I would want it to be with administrative law, uh, administrative judges who are experts, right? In essence, they, this they memo, would be helping themselves out. They would be helping themselves. It, it moves risk off of their plate to somebody else and allows them to focus on their mission. So again, doesn't take away their ability to act in an exigent circumstance. All of but this makes a lot of sense to me. So I, I get you. Let me ask you this. Are there, are you aware of cases where people have been arbitrarily denied their security clearances for reasons that are unsavory? You had, you had talked about something earlier. Um, about yeah. I mean, look, I mean, I'm sure Mark and I both know of, of many um, instances, right? Like Mark said, I mean, there are 20,000 people or so a year that run into problems. I mean, Mark, do, do you have an example of, of, I'm sure you've had an example of a case where somebody was wrongfully denied a clearance. Well, I, I mean, you can make, I have opinions about decisions where it just seems ludicrous as to what it was. Uh, I remember a case once where, uh, which I resolved at Doha because it finally got to the lawyers where someone, an American citizen, because you have to be a U.S. citizen to have a clearance unless there's a, a very small number of exceptions. But the guy owned 50% of a Canadian brewery because he was originally from Canada. And that was a potential security risk. Other times you get 
just anonymous, again, still like anonymous statements against people, or they have relatives that live overseas in friendly countries, but that they've had them for years. Like they've had, you know, something all of a sudden happens where someone just pays attention and goes, wait a minute, you've been cleared for all these years, but you do have those relatives who live in wherever country, you would, you know, whatever you want to add. Um, there are lots of cases where it would be, I think, objectively ridiculed. But that's that's besides the point, because it's all about having the due process. We're not Agreed. trying. Right, yeah, we're right. not trying to insert ourselves to say what is ridiculous, what is not. We want to be able to argue. And the one key thing just to make sense to to kind of drill down just a tiny bit, because it's important, again, to emphasize this is about. Creating parity. So the description that Ezra spelled out just a minute ago with respect to uh, not putting people on leave without pay, and some people might be thinking in the audience, well, if there's a security concern, that person should be suspended and not have access, right? A lot of people might think that. They don't do that for contractors. Defense exactly. private contractors do not lose their clearances pending potential revocation. They remain in access sometimes for years before an agency finally adjudicates. Why are defense contractors getting uh, having greater rights and than military personnel and military and civilian federal officials? That's exactly. And, and Ezra, I guess uh, to the point you, you said that it's it's due. This decision has to be implemented by the 30th of September, but uh, for the fact that you believe that the DOD is trying to now weasel out of it. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it will be... You My know, words, again, weasel, not yours. Yeah, you know, look, I, I want to... I, I don't want to... Um, you know, take away um, my successor's decision space and, you know, out of respect right. for him. Um, I, I th so I'm, I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to use any of the language you use, Brian, but I, I think, <laughs> I think, look, I, I, I sympathize. I mean, um, I was also under a lot of pressure uh, to not do this by people within the bureaucracy. Now, interestingly, the, the staff attorneys, the career attorneys at DOD, were ecstatic about this um, because, you know, as an as a lawyer, uh, you want a repeatable, consistent outcome, right? You don't want uh, a unpredictable legal outcome. When something is hidden and not transparent, it's unpredictable. So the the, the attorneys were ecstatic about this. The but within the bureaucracy, and, and so I think that there's a lot of pressure um, not to do this, and. Frankly, look, this memo has been in effect for a year and a half, and there are probably a lot of people who are going to expect that they will be able to have these very reasonable due process right come, rights come September 30th, 2022. You know, we will be pulling the rug out. If this does not go into effect on, on the 30th of this month, we will be pulling the rug out literally from people that have put their lives on the line to defend this country. I think we just need to think about that really clearly. And and Mark, so what happens on September 30th if this is not implemented? Well, what what I've been told by folks within the Department of Defense in the office that Ezra once held is that they're looking to fold 
Ezra's memo into what is called the Trusted Workforce 2.0. I think I just fell asleep saying that. <laughs> it, it is a working group effort that began in 2018 uh, and goes until 2023 to try and um, it has three principal goals. Reduce the time it takes to onboard new hires. Enable workforce mobility. Improve the vetting process. It, it's all about at the front end rather than sort of the middle or back end, what we're talking about. It doesn't deal with substantive due process at all. It is this working group effort from hell that I'm sure is doing very good, important things. It deals with efficiency, which we desperately need within the governmental system. But by folding Ezra's memo into that process, they will effectively drown it out and most likely kill it just the way they did in the aftermath of Secretary Gates' 2011 memo, where the people who were in power who ordered it left, and then the folks underneath at the sub-level just kind of took over and made sure it never happened again. Now, going to the legal comment that Ezra was making that was really important, the Defense Office of Hearings and Appeals, unlike a lot of the other agencies that handle adjudicate security clearance decisions, which are part of the security office, Doha is under the Office of General Counsel. The lawyers run Doha, which is why the lawyers have been signing off on this for years. And it's been the security outsiders that people don't know their names or faces that have been undermining this substantive due process effort. And Ezra, do you think that at the end of the day, what do you think will happen if this doesn't, if, if I mean, we can all speculate, but you would have a better handle on it than I or, or, or Mark, I suppose. What happens at the end of the day if this initiative is not taken? Well, the same thing that's happened in the past, uh, you know, 70 years since Eisenhower signed his reforms in 1960. Um, you know, nothing will happen. And I, I think and that who that's suffers? the problem. Well, who suffers? The, again, the people that suffer are those that are making extraordinary sacrifices for this country. I don't know. And, and this, this is the thing, Brian, again, and I'll come back to what I said earlier on. There is no way that you look at the current system and say to yourself, it is okay to strip somebody of their livelihood that has put their life on the line for this country without giving them the right to a hearing uh, before, before their life is ruined. I mean, you, you just it's just not reasonable. And so, you know, I think that one thing you need to understand when they say working groups, okay, this is, this is well understood. I'm sure a lot of people are chuckling within the beltway that are listening to your podcast. Yes. I, working, group, at working groups, too. Work, working groups is, is absolutely code for, you know, deep sixing something, right. Basically yeah. burying it and, and making sure it doesn't, it doesn't come out. And, yeah, and you know, let's put a pin on that and circle back around to it. Right. Right. Exactly. And, and uh, you know, um, we don't actually need any working groups, right? The 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 solution that that I came up with, along with the general counsel's office, is actually quite elegant. It it really doesn't create anything new. It just extends what President Eisenhower put in place in 1960 to many many people that are uh, putting their lives and their life on the line for this country. 
It's very simple. We don't we don't need a new bureaucracy, right? I mean, the other thing that, that often comes out of working groups is new bureaucracy. And as Mark just said, we need to actually make things more efficient. We don't need to, you know, have and 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 reinforce all of these independent efforts within each of the agencies and different places within DOD. We need to unify it into one place that's run by very experienced attorneys and administrate career administrative law judges so that we have repeatable and consistent legal outcomes. Mark, do you think that what 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 will A, I guess Ezra, I'll ask you this first. Do you think that they'll be successful in not implementing the initiative? And if so, Mark, what's the next step? So again, you know, I uh, I believe that uh, there are many people um, within the Department of Defense that uh, just just like me believe that it's never the wrong time to do the right thing. Um, and so, you know, there are a lot of people that have worked very hard within the uh, Office of General Counsel, career uh, folks that have worked very hard since this me- since I signed this memo. Um, and I, I believe the department has the ability to move ahead with this. Um, but it's going to mean that uh, somebody is just going to have to kind of, you know, tune out the bureaucratic noise a little bit and 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 move ahead with the right thing that Secretary Gates, uh, um, you know, suggested, that President Eisenhower suggested, um, that that many others have suggested. Um, I think if they don't move ahead with it, well, I don't know. I'll, I'll let Mark uh, opine on that. <laughs> Mark, you may opine on that. <laughs> So the problem and one of the reasons why it has taken so long and it required the bravery of someone like Ezra, who was going to just basically say no to those beneath him in the in the bureaucracy and and take the hit, which he was able to do. There was only a few days left in the Trump administration, uh, though I'm sure he would have done it if it had been earlier. But. Uh, there just wasn't time. Well, well Mark, Mark, well, Mark, let me jump in there. So actually, Brian, real quick, just to what Mark yeah. said, actually, when I became USDI, this was literally the first thing on my agenda to do. And, and you didn't come in until November. In November, right. But but I knew that, you know, this was going to be the first thing I was going to tackle. And so, um, so the fact that it took place on 14 January when I signed it, why did it take so many months to basically turn out something that's so common sense and only in a page and a half long? Uh, and and it, it took that long because of the unbelievable inertia. And, and finally, what, what happened is, and I'll let you in on a little secret, is that uh, I sat in my office with uh, several of the most se- senior career people within the Office of General Counsel, and we literally typed this out on my computer right there. Uh, and you, other people will know uh, the number of times that a undersecretary of defense for intelligence has ever typed out a memo on his own on a computer is probably like less than five. So, <laughs> so, 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 but, but it took basically. Just are, doing are you the talking right about their typing skills or their initiative? <laughs> I, I don't even know if they could log into their computers. Um, so, so, so the fact of the matter is, it took a lot longer than it should have. This should have been done on, you know, the second week of November. Sorry, Mark. That's okay. So the, this is very much in the weeds. This is one reason why it's taken so long, because most of the time, individuals who were in Ezra's position as the Undersecretary for Intelligence and Security 
have no knowledge about security clearances other than they have one. And they probably right. had one for many, many years. But the, the nuts and bolts of security clearance due process is a really small niche of people. So the grand scheme of things, people aren't paying attention. It's in the news every once in a while because someone important loses their clearance or some issue comes up where there's ridicule about a decision. But other than that, it's very quiet process. If this doesn't happen by the 30th of September, the possibility, which quite frankly, the executive branch should not want, is that the legislative branch is going to uh, um, create a statute that will implement what Ezra's trying to do or tried to do via memo. I mean, that is in the works. The Congress has been working on security Congress. Uh, it's it's mostly coming from the, the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, what we call the SISI, but also the HIPSI, the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence and its members. Again, totally bipartisan. It's not a it's not a political issue, but they have been working on it for years as well. And oftentimes the executive branch talks them out of it because they promise reform on the inside. But if they scuttle this effort that has been underway for a year and a half from the memo, but decades, decades, literally in the works, I, I'm pretty confident that Congress is going to step up and force this down the departments and the rest of the agencies, the, the executive branch's throats. But they may add in things that the executive yes. branch doesn't like. Right. So the, so there's no guarantee. What you're saying is a bird in the hands were two in a bush. Yeah. So Ezra, what you what you're proposing is palatable to those people, and if not, they may get something they might they may not like. Uh, of course, right? You know, as a senior executive branch official, you never want Congress to step in and, and effectively um, bind you, <laughs> we, right? We've because, all seen how Congress works, right? So that, right. that's an understatement, right? So, so, so you this is really what Mark described as probably the worst case scenario um, from a from the you know perspective of um, the executive branch. Um, you know, I I think that you know Mark kind of got to something, which is it would have been really easy not to even think about this, right? I mean, you know, right. we, we were dealing with with issues that uh, were, were certainly um, much more time consuming with this in terms of, you know, uh, threats from China, threats from Russia, threats from Iran, um, you know, Russian uh, aggression in Eastern Europe and, and all of these. Yes, sorts I've been of to things. Ukraine. I know exactly right. what you're talking about. Right. And, and, and by the way, you know, I mean, that that's uh, that was not a certainly not a surprise. And, and we were taking steps to address it. This is a lot of people would say, well, this is the last thing that you should have thought about. It would have been very easy to just ignore this problem. Um, you know, I think as a good leader, uh, you need to take make the moves that, that can really improve the standing and the lives of the most people that work for you. And um, this is one of those few things that really touches so many people and affects so many people. So, you know, I view it the other way around. Had I ignored this, I, I really would have felt completely irresponsible. It would have been completely irresponsible. Ezra, you're, 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 you're preaching to the choir there. The best way to get a team to move in, in the direction you want them is to make them comfortable and happy in their positions and let them do what they do best. 
And yeah, the, although although Brian, I, I got to tell you, and, and I thought when I signed this that I that I would absolutely be setting up the incoming administration to reap the the, the benefits uh, of you know improved uh, an improved workplace climate. Um, you know, so I, I I still hope that this comes in, and, and I should also add, Brian. I mean, this during the transition, um, you know, this memo was extensively discussed. Uh, with the income, with the incoming team, the uh, the incoming Biden administration, who, who and the Biden team did you all discuss it with? My, my, with my transition, uh, presidential transition counterpart. Okay. Um, so this was this was extensively discussed, and uh, in fact, it was discussed before I signed the memo. I wanted to make very very sure that I would not be signing something that would be uh, you know inconsistent or place the incoming administration in a, in a tough spot to get out of. When I briefed them about this memo that I was intending to sign and the reforms I was intending to make, uh, I received a very, very positive reaction from this very senior member of the transition team. So, you know, was his name Ron Klein? <laughs> no, no it, was, it was not. It was it was a, a, a you know, a, a career, uh, another career intelligence officer, a retired uh, general. Um, and uh, and uh, she she was quite uh, prof incredibly pro uh, professional and a competent leader. And, and anyway, you know, there was no pushback. You know, had I gotten from them, hey, you know, don't sign this. It's going to put us in a so terrible. Where's the pushback coming from now? Well, it's not I, again the bureaucracy, right? The same people that spent ten weeks trying to sabotage this memorandum. And who sabotaged Secretary Gates' effort back in 2011? It's it's some of the same people for for the simply wanting to hold on to power. Yeah, or or substituting their individual judgment without Due understanding. Process. They're not lawyers. Most of them, they're they're security policy people. I I for one have never frankly, heard an argument, and I've heard quite a bit in the uh, last year and a half of why this should not happen. I've never heard one that makes sense in any way, shape or form. I mean, uh, you know, another because, again, this is all in the weeds. So these PSABs, the Personnel Security Appeals Board, right, the Air Force has one, the Navy has one, the Army has one. When when for now, for current military folks who are, are there, uh, when they get to go before Doha uh, at, a, at a particular level, the Doha judge, unlike for contractors, can only make a recommended decision. And right. then it goes back to the PSAB versus a contractor where the administrative judge for Doha can make a final decision right then and there. Not in the moment, but the, you know to take whatever weeks or months that they need to issue a decision like any judge. But the PSABs, have a statistical uh, rate of from 70, if I remember the numbers correct, from about 76% to 96% that they follow what the Doha administrative judge does. So if you have a PSAB that 96% of the time adopts the Doha judge, think of the inefficiency that that engages in, the manpower that exists for no reason the time delay that exists for no reason. I had a case recently where for a year, 
the guy had actually gotten his clearance, but something screwed up and the PSAB never notified anybody and it wasn't implemented in the system. And we were just sitting there waiting. <laughs> it sounds like the government. Look, we're going to take a short break. We're, we'll wrap up when we come back. Thanks for sticking around. It's just ask the question. I am your host, Brian Karam. We'll be right back. Hey, you. Yeah, you. We're talking to you, and we need your help. Seriously. As you probably know, independent journalism is a vital pillar of our democracy. Like everything else, it's not free. We're asking all longtime listeners of the show to help support us by becoming a member on Patreon. For the price of a latte, you can help guard democracy. Join us today at patreon.com slash podcast to help us keep bringing you the podcast you love and the facts you deserve. Hey, Just Ask the Question podcast listeners. If you've got a second, head on over to Twitter and follow our official page, J-A-T-Q Podcast. That's J-A-T-Q Podcast. Again, that's at J-A-T-Q Podcast. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, Just Ask the Questions newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth. With Brian's in-depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not found anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash J-A-T-Q podcast. Hi, we're back. It's Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karaman, for a few final thoughts on the issue. Uh, Ezra, uh, give me where you think we're going with this. Well, again, I, I want to remain... Uh, and I am going to remain optimistic that uh, on the 30th, um, hopefully with uh, no more than a couple day uh, extension, um, these key reforms will go into effect. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, I, I want to make sure that uh, whether it's for my, uh, my, my former uh, uh, colleagues that are still uh, within the intelligence community or, or, or even, you know, um, for my future in the intelligence community, I want to be able to work uh, with people um, that trust the system. Um, I want to be able to work with people that know that they are not going to be uh, uh, stripped of their livelihood without a basic hearing. Um, and and I think that you know beyond improving morale, uh, it's just simply the right thing to do by these people that have given so much uh, to the country. So I, I remain optimistic that, uh, that that the right thing will happen on September 30th. Thanks. Is there any final thoughts, Mark? Sure. So people need to understand how important this substantive due process actually is. There's a Supreme Court case from 1988 called Department of Navy versus Egan. And actually, some of your listeners may find that name familiar because it keeps being cited in the Mar-a-Lago litigation between 
former President Trump and the White House and the Justice Department about who controls classified information and access, et cetera. And actually, they keep citing it for, for reasons that are irrelevant to anything that is going on in the Mar-a-Lago document classification dispute. Department of Navy versus Egan is a security clearance case. It dealt with whether or not the Merit System Protection Board has statutory jurisdiction to determine security clearance cases. And it was decided, no, it does not. But that decision has been used since 1988 to strip federal courts of any jurisdiction to hear a security clearance dispute. So that when we have a case where someone loses their clearance, you cannot go to court over that. The only process one has is administrative, which means the military and civil servants who would benefit from Ezra Cohen's memo from January of 2021 have these less, fewer rights, less rights than others with no recourse to fight for it in any type of judicial forum. The buck stops here in this process. And so I really hope, as Ezra does, that Department of Defense will see fit to implement this as it's been required to do so in just a few days. And I, Ezra, I thank you for being with us tonight. Mark, it's always a pleasure. And I, I think both of you are speaking, I, I mean, I hope you're preaching to the choir that due process is something, especially as Ezra, as you pointed out, to military personnel who put the most on the line and sacrificed the most for our country, deserve the idea of a due process before any decision is made that will affect their livelihood and their ability to, to uh, feed their families. So thanks, Brian. Yeah, thank you, Ezra, for the thank you for the memo. Thank you for bringing it forward, Mark. Thank you. The show is just asked the question. I am your host, Brian Karam. Thanks for joining us, and we'll catch you next time.